0: It's good to see you today. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. Chapter 6 is where we're going to be today, and we are uh, continuing our series in the Gospel of John and, and taking the next passage uh, here today in, in John chapter 6. Um, but first, uh, I want to start with, with a story. And I got, I got permission from a buddy of mine to tell this story, but a few weeks ago, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and, and he said, hey, I went to church and I said, cool, so tell me about it. How was the experience? And he, so he, you know, just like he would, told me about his experience at church. And uh, here's, you know, things maybe I liked or didn't like. It was at a different church here in town. And um, and then he said this. He said, at the end, it got kind of weird. And I thought, okay. Um, happened to me before, trust me. Um, he said, the, the preacher was talking about Jesus, but it kind of seemed like he was talking about a vampire. <laughs> and I thought... Okay, um, what church should you go to? Uh, you know, because I don't. You never know. There's, you know, and so I, and I was thinking about. Okay, well, how could Jesus seem like a vampire? And and I, I, even this morning we sang a song. There's power in the blood. And I thought, okay, I could kind of see that. And he, so he explained how the pastor was talking about Jesus. And he said um, he can't come into you, to your life unless he's invited. And I guess that's the thing with vampires. They have to be invited. Good to know, next, next run-in, don't invite them in. Um, he, they can't come in unless they're invited, but Jesus, he doesn't want just part of your life, he wants to consume your life, which I guess, depending on how you say it, could sort of sound um, vampiric, and then he kind of went on and on, and there was each thing I thought, you know, he, he kind of does sound like a vampire when you think about it like that way, and it was, it was pretty helpful for me, because as somebody who preaches regularly, and yet just like any Christian, Christians are like plumbers and electricians and computer programmers. We develop our own lingo, and it's sometimes called Christianese, and we think we're making total sense, and yet, to just a regular person, Jesus can sound sort of like a vampire. And so I was, I was taking note of this. Josh, when you preach, think about your words. Think about how you sound, right? Um, because I can slip into this Christianese. And so I, I told my buddy, I said, hey, Actually, I preach once a month at this church called Grace Community Church. You ought to come next time I preach. And then I said this, I promise I won't make Jesus seem like a vampire. And I felt super confident in my ability to do that. Um, Except I hadn't looked at what my passage was for today. (laughs) So, and I quote from my passage Unless, this is Jesus speaking, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then he goes on to repeat this, no joke, five times. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And I'm like, God, like, are you serious? Like, I just... I just promised my buddy that Jesus wasn't a vampire and then I wouldn't and then this is the passage this is the passage that I get and so maybe it's proof that God has a sense of humor I don't know but but the question I want to look at today is not whether Jesus is a vampire but what do you do when Jesus offends you because the passage we're going to read at the end of this passage Jesus is going to ask this question um, does this offend you And everybody in the crowd's gonna be like, yes, (laughs) this offends us. What do you do when Jesus says something that seems just strange, bizarre, even, even offensive? And there might be people who would say, well, of course, Jesus would never say anything that is strange or bizarre or offensive. And my question would be, have you read the Bible? Like Jesus says strange things all the time. And if you follow him for any amount of time, if you open yourself up to the words of Jesus in Scripture, eventually he's gonna say something that just seems incredibly bizarre, something that offends you perhaps. And my argument today is that how you respond to that strangeness will make all the difference in your relationship with Jesus. What do you do when when Jesus says something that is just strange or, or bizarre, or offensive. In the passage we're going to read, John 6, the words will be up on the screen, beginning in verse 35, might be considered one of the strangest or most offensive things that Jesus ever says. And so we'll read it together, and then, and then we'll talk about it today. He's just fed a crowd of 5,000 people. He's just walked on water. It's the height of Jesus' popularity. And then he says this, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In verse 41, it says this, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? In verse 47, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? In them. This is God's word. I have a, I listened to several podcasts, and one of the podcasts I've listened to a few times is a podcast by a comedian. Uh, His name is Pete Holmes. And the title of the podcast is You Made It Weird. And that's kind of the sense that I get from the crowd when Jesus says this. It's like, okay, Jesus, you just fed 5,000 people, you just walked on water. It says at one point that they wanted to make him king by force, and then Jesus goes, as he often does, and makes it weird by repeating no less than five times that pretty much the only way to eternal life is to drink his blood and and eat his flesh. And he says, like we said already, after this, in a few verses later, in the passage that Rod's gonna preach on next week, does this offend you? And the answer from everybody is yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> and it says that this whole group of people who have flocked to Jesus and wanted to make him king by force, all of them except just a few people, walk away they're like, yeah that's it's taken things have gotten weird, but let's go home and they they abandon Jesus and so the question is, what do you do when Jesus says something, perhaps through scriptures, perhaps through the spirit of God that just seems incredibly offensive or or bizarre? That's the question that we're going to look at today. And if you've got your outline in the update, there's just a few sort of bullet points to sort of walk through this this passage. And the first bullet point says the Jesus pattern, the Jesus pattern in, in miracles and messaging. And anytime somebody says something outlandish or they do something outlandish, one of the first things we ask, or maybe your, you know, psychiatrist would ask is, is this a pattern? Has this been a pattern in your life? And the reality is with Jesus, there, there is a, a kind of pattern in his work. And, and I'm going to call it the Jesus pattern. And, and it has to do with miracles, and it also has to do with his, his messaging, the way he speaks. And, and the, merit, the, the pattern essentially goes like this. In many cases, Jesus, when he, when he does miracles, he meets a genuine need out of genuine compassion. That's the first step. Jesus, when he heals people, when he helps people, he's not just doing like magic tricks for the cameras. He's not just trying to make a big scene. He he meets genuine needs out of genuine compassion, whether it's healing a child or, or giving food to a crowd of starving, hungry people. He meets a genuine need out of genuine compassion. In this case, people were hungry, and he meets that need. Then, He uses that that sign, and John calls it a sign, to point to who he really is. And so the miracle is not just about the the bread or or about creating like a scene or something. It's about himself. He says this, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. So first he meets the need, and then he kind of uses that sign to point to who he, he really is. And then the third part is where it gets uncomfortable, because after Jesus has sort of pointed to who he really is, he then turns t- to highlight the, the really radical nature of following him, the, the radical nature of, of discipleship. And he does this in, in many ways. This is not the only passage. I've just thrown up like four of them on the next slide here on the screen. Other examples of how Jesus does this, whether he's talking about family. In Matthew 10, he says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In another case, he slips into a kind of rhetorical device called hyperbole where he says, unless you hate your father and mother, you are not worthy of me. And he's, he's Clearly speaking, hyperbolically, Jesus doesn't you know, espouse hatred towards parents, but that's another example of him highlighting this radical nature of discipleship. Wealth, he says at one point, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Awkward. He, he uses this, this radical language. Sexuality, Matthew 5, he talks about how if anyone looks at a woman lustfully and objectifies her, he says has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, right? And they're like, I don't, I don't know if that's the best advice, Jesus. I mean, I know we have some eye doctors here. They might, you know, I don't know, they benefit from in business, but don't do that. Life itself, Matthew, he says this, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, And at this time, the cross is very much not like a metaphor for salvation, but a Greco-Roman torture device. It would be like saying something like, if you want to follow me, um, first step, uh, go get waterboarded. Second step, have all your fingernails pulled out. Third step, I mean, this is a torture device, and Jesus says, if you want to follow me, step one, take up your cross. And so whether he's talking about family, wealth, sexuality, or life itself. This this habit of highlighting the radical nature of discipleship fits the kind of pattern that we see in in the gospels. And so we like, why does Jesus do this? I was thinking today, like, how, how difficult would it be to be Jesus's like publicity firm, right? To be like his PR guy. You get this call like once a week, and you're like, this previous it's it's been a great week. They wanted to make him king by force. He fed five thousand people. He walked on water. His poll numbers are really great. And then you get this phone call. You're like, he said what? Five times he said? No, his account had to have been hacked. He wouldn't have said that, right? No, no, he really did, right? How would it be to be Jesus' PR firm, and why does he, why does he do this? Um, and I think one of the reasons is, in this passage, we see Jesus doing something that he does more than once. And that is, he rejects celebrity in favor of discipleship. He rejects the opportunity be, to be universally acclaimed in favor of a deeper form of discipleship. He, he's willing to, to make it weird for the case and for the cause of uh, a deeper form of discipleship. I, I wrote this out this week, and I'll just read it as I wrote it. I think there is an illusion That the gospel or Christianity is just an add-on or an extension to our existing opinions and worldviews. And and the the best way I can liken it is that I have, because it's springtime, I'm thinking about this again. I have a weed whacker. I have a trimmer. And the nice thing about this trimmer is you can put any number of extensions on the end of the trimmer and they just kind of clip into the trimmer. Um, I never do, of course. I just use the trimmer part occasionally. But, but it's, there's all these add-ons, and the illusion is that Christianity is, a, is like that, that it's basically just an extension to your existing opinions and your existing worldview. But in many cases, the gospel is actually a supplanting or an uprooting worldview. And because of this, the strangeness, the radical nature of the gospel has to strike us. It ought to strike us. Because if it doesn't, we can be quite sure that we've remade Jesus in our own image. And one of the great dangers of a kind of cultural Christianity, and you find this in certain places, in certain regions, especially in the Bible Belt, is that we think, many of us think we've been converted to Christ, but in fact, we've just been co-opted or maybe even corrupted by a sort of vague spirit of religiosity a vague spirit of religiosity. And the problem with that kind of comfortable or nominal Christianity is that it allows so many of our old assumptions, our old sinful presuppositions, our prejudices to go unchallenged. And in so doing, it acts like a vaccine. It acts like a vaccine whereby we're inoculated to the true message of Jesus because we've been repeatedly exposed to a weakened or dead version of it. In in response, Christ says, rather than clinging to what just seems reasonable or comfortable or normal, based on your culture or your upbringing, I want you to cling to me. I am the bread come down from heaven. And he's willing to make it weird in order to communicate that. So that's the first thing, the Jesus pattern. This is a pattern in Jesus's ministry. It's not the only time he says really hard or strange things. The second thing, why? Why Christ's words were so offensive? And we probably should say this, that especially in our culture today, um, some things that people find offensive, I would argue, are not necessarily all that offensive, correct? And sometimes people get upset about things that probably they shouldn't. I was reading and listening about a story this past week about a restaurant. The restaurant's called the Antler, the Antler, and it's a restaurant in Toronto. It serves like locally sourced, locally um, uh, sourced uh, meat and vegetables, and it's kind of a high-end, swanky restaurant. And they have a sign, and you can kind of see the sign in this picture. And just as a joke, they wrote on this sign, "Venison is the new kale." <laughs> which I thought, that's kind of funny. You know, I don't really like venison or kale, but you know it's, it's kind of a good joke, I guess. And venison is the new kale. And what happened was that a bicyclist rode by, who happened to be very active in the you know, anti-meat, um, indus- anti-meat organization, and they began to protest this restaurant for their sign that said venison is the new kale. And the police had to get involved. Um, there was all sorts of disturbances around the surrounding businesses. And so, whether you're a vegetarian or a vegan or not a vegan or not, like, I don't care any about that. But I would argue okay, that's pretty mild, right? Venison is the new kale. I don't know that that's like cause to be terribly offended. And so, the first thing we could probably say is well, sometimes people get offended at things that really aren't that offensive. But, next slide why Jesus' words were offensive, right? And even though he is talking about meat, right? And it, I would put this on a different level than venison of the, as the new kale. Christ's words were genuinely offensive. One reason they were genuinely offensive is he's talking to a Jewish audience. Jesus is a Jew. All of his disciples are Jewish. It says in the passage that the Jews were offended, right? One of the reasons Jews were offended in Leviticus I'm sure this is all of your, like, this is your life verse, I'm sure. Um, Jews were forbidden from consuming any blood. So no medium-rare steaks. Sorry, I kind of like my steak medium-rare, but that wouldn't work in the Old Testament, right? Leviticus says this, wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or any animal. Anyone who eats blood must be cut off from their people. And here's Jesus saying, not just like, it's okay to have a medium-rare steak, He's saying, drink my blood, and this is is super offensive. That's that's one reason. A second reason, uh, a New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright talks about the Greek word that Jesus uses here for eat, and he says it's, the the NIV, the, the English translations kind of tame it down a little bit, because the word he uses would be more accurately rendered munch, chew, crunch. And he says, it's as if Jesus is actually heightening the awkwardness by phrasing it in this way. He's he's pushing the physicality of salvation. That the way we are saved is not through an idea or through a spirit, but by way of a body, a physical body, the body of Jesus. And so his words are genuinely awkward." in this passage. And so the third bullet point, and the one that actually probably is the most important, what did he mean? What in the world did Jesus mean when he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood five times in a row in this, in this passage? So first thing to think about, that this, this phrase is, I would argue, a metaphor and not a call for cannibalism. So, just good news today. That's not, the big idea today is not gonna be go and do likewise, hashtag cannibalism. Um, A metaphor and not a call for, for cannibalism. Shakespeare, in A Midsummer's Night Dream, he has this great quote about metaphors. He says, metaphors give to airy nothing a local habitation and a name that metaphors take just ethereal ideas and give them like something tangible that we can latch on to. And, and that can be a really good thing, but it can also lead to confusion, especially when the metaphor is repeated like it is, like it is here. And so one argument for what Jesus means is this. In the same way that you depend on bread for life, I want you to depend me I want you to stop looking at me as this sort of like add-on to your sustenance and your life I want you to look at me as the very source of your life and your sustenance in the same way that you look at bread and wine in the ancient world I want you to look at me like that in fact I want you to see yourself as being one with me and it's interesting when the Bible talks about salvation. It uses metaphors of oneness, oneness, that the way that someone is saved is by becoming one with Jesus so that what is true of Jesus is true of us, that we are perfectly loved, forgiven, sinless, accepted in the eyes of the Father because we're one with Jesus, not because we are inherently perfect in our own Right, it's by becoming one with Christ that we are seen as sons and daughters of God. And so the Bible uses oneness metaphors. And the most obvious oneness metaphor in the ancient world or the modern world is eating and drinking. When you eat something or you drink something, it literally becomes you. And it becomes one with you. The other metaphor that the Bible uses is marriage. The Bible speaks of when the two become one flesh. That's how it describes marriage, but it's also how it describes salvation. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, this is a great mystery. The two become one, and he says, I'm talking about Christ and his bride, the the church. And so the metaphor is one of, of oneness. By belief in Christ, we become one with Christ so that what's true of him is, is true of us. Colin Brown is a New Testament scholar. He says John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. And so he says in his view it's not that when we take the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper that we're literally consuming the, the very blood of Christ. But the John 6 is, is the deeper reality towards which even, even the Lord's Supper is pointing, that it's be, by becoming one with Christ that we, that we are saved. And that's what Jesus means in this passage. But a, a deeper question, and the last question would be this. Well, like, What relevance, what does that mean for us in our lives when Jesus says things that are offensive? And so the last bullet point on the outline, what this means for us Today and so I'll start with a qualifier. What this doesn't mean, uh, sort of a caveat or a qualifier. Next slide. And that is, not all offensive talk is Jesus talk, right? And there is this. I. You shouldn't have to say this. You're like that's a pretty obvious point, Josh. Um, what do we pay you for? Um, so you shouldn't have to say this. But the reality is that sometimes people, and I've known Christians who are like this, they notice that Jesus says very harsh things at certain points. Jesus says things that are even offensive to his hearers. And the takeaway from that is, I am going to go and do likewise. I am going to intentionally be sort of bellicose in my rhetoric, right? And there are times perhaps for for strong words but I would argue that, that in some cases, in many cases even, when sometimes we think we're being bold and we're actually being rude. And there is a difference between boldness and rudeness. And just because Jesus uses harsh language at times, it's not an open invitation for Christians to be what Paul calls clanging gongs and resounding symbols. And I can think of times in my own life where I wish I would have taken a more loving approach to my words. And so just because Jesus speaks like this, it's not an open invitation for offensive, over-the-top rhetoric. And when we use that, in some cases, we come across as bullies with bullhorns rather than as the body of Christ. So that's the first caveat, but then moving on from there, I think the question, if you had to ask one question of this whole passage would be this, next slide, do you want a relationship with God, this is what Jesus is asking, or do you only want the stuff, the bread that he can give you? He says this, he says essentially to his own people, Jesus is Jewish, he says, you're just like your ancestors, they received this bread from heaven and they grumbled, the manna in the wilderness, they grumbled at the gift that God had given them. Do you really want God's gift? Do you want God himself or do you just want the stuff, the bread That God can give to you? Do you just want a better family? Do you just want a more healthy view of your finances or how you can raise children or do you really want a relationship with with God? I think last time I preached I talked about this and I said if Jesus was not in heaven, if God were not in heaven, would you still want to go there? Do you genuinely want a relationship with God or you just want the stuff, the stuff that he can give to us? Do we see Jesus as the source of life and, and sustenance? That's one takeaway for us, a question. And also some, some further observations or, or applications. Why is it that Christ offends? Because I've already said that just intentionally being offensive is a terrible approach to ministry and relationships and life. So why does Jesus, why does he do this and why does he offend us today. I think sometimes he offends us first because we just mishear him. We we don't understand what he's saying. And this is a theme throughout the Gospel of John. Nicodemus, earlier in the Gospel, one of Israel's theology professors, so to speak, comes to Jesus and Jesus says, look, you've got to be born from above or born again. And Nicodemus says, I won't fit back inside my mom's belly. I don't know how this, you know, he mishears what Jesus says. And so it takes time and work sometimes to understand what Jesus is saying. He, we, he offends us because we, we don't understand him rightly. We, miss, we mishear him. Secondly, sometimes he offends us because we hear him rightly. We understand him perfectly but our perspective has been bent or, or misshaped by the sin in our own lives. And sometimes if I'm really honest, I don't want to listen to Jesus, because if I do, it will require me to change. It'll require me to reexamine the way I'm treating people, the way I'm treating my wife, the way I'm treating my kids, the way I'm treating my friends, the way I'm ordering my finances, the way I'm ordering my time, the way I'm ordering my thoughts, and sometimes Jesus offends not because he is inherently evil or offensive or anything like that, but because we, in our own ways, are affected by sin and we need, we need transformation, we need repentance. A third thing, he offends us sometimes, I think, to see if we can trust him even when we don't understand. He offends us not out of an evil, malicious attitude, but to see if we're willing to trust him in the absence of total understanding. When we can't see his point, when we don't follow his logic, when we don't recognize his reasons for something, will we we trust him in that moment? There's an old Indiana Jones movie. This is dating me a little bit. Um, The Last Crusade. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and there's a famous scene at the Last Crusade. You've probably seen it. I've got a picture of it here, where Indiana Jones is step, He's at the edge of this just big chasm, and there is no way across. And he has these instructions that say he basically has to just leap across the chasm. And he looks at. It, there's no way. There is no way. Like Michael Jordan could not make this leap, right? And he chooses to take this sort of step of faith into. The chasm and it's only when he does that that he sees this sort of walkway that's been hidden it's been hidden on purpose actually and he realizes that what God so to speak wanted was someone who was willing to trust him even in the absence of total understanding and Jesus says this Rod will preach on it next week he says this to Peter after everybody else abandons him he says are you also going to leave me? And Peter gives this incredibly like, unimpressive st- statement. This sort of like, Peter says, where else can we go? <laughs> and then he says this, you alone have the words that give eternal life. He says, I'm willing to trust you, even though what you just said does not make sense to me. And so in many ways, the Christian life is, is an exercise in trust based on what we know of the heart of God, what we've seen of him. Jesus says, I give my body for the life of the world. Will you, will you trust me? And so I want to reflect on that question today as we close. Uh, one of our elders, Chuck Holland, is going to come up and, and close us in prayer. Um, but as he's coming, would you bow with me as we prepare for this closing this closing prayer do you trust the risen jesus even when he says things even when he allows things that you do not fully understand will you trust him even when he seems perhaps strange or or even offensive
1: let's pray let's stand while we pray father god um the challenge that we have before us to uh, know and trust you, Father, is incredible. Um, as we spoke early about how we would see you when we see you, I can only imagine what it's going to be like when we stand before you are we going to be able to stand or we're going to be on our knees worshiping you? Father, are our hearts tuned to you in a way that uh, gives us the courage. To be disciples father to have a radical nature about our discipleship and to understand father that uh, your love for us was what uh, created the relationship that we can have that you can be the one who lives through us and that our lives reflect you in all that we do father thanks for giving us your son and the sacrifice that he made uh, thanks for his shedding of his blood for us and for our sin go with us in peace father and grace and may our lives reflect you in all that we do and say and think in jesus name amen don't forget cuba night tonight if you have a chance crash over me